If you're interested in what China's doing in Africa and the Global South, you're going to want to subscribe to the China Africa Project. We've indexed every major news story going back years, and it's easily searchable by country, topic, or keyword. Plus, we're the only source for daily analysis on all of the big stories related to Chinese engagement in Africa and throughout the developing world. With a subscription, you'll enjoy full access to the site. Plus, you'll get our popular daily email newsletter that comes out every morning at 6 a.m. Washington time. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everyone else. To sign up, just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a rather tragic week in Nigeria, a lot of despair and frustration that's there. Uh, last week, we, of course, reported on the shutdown of Twitter. That is still in effect as of now. Also, there were some protests on last Saturday that ended up with tear gas being exchanged. And there's just a brewing sense of frustration and, and anger towards the government that things just are not going well. And in fact, the economy, you know, hitting a downturn in the post-COVID era or still in the current COVID era here in Nigeria and much of the global south, uh, there's just a sense of frustration. But that being said, amidst the the difficulties that Nigeria is going through, there was a moment of excitement, of good news, actually. And that was in Lagos with the launch of the 157-kilometer Lagos to Ibadan Railway. This is a $1.5 billion project that was built by the China Civil Engineering Construction Corporation, CCECC. Those guys are building lots of stuff throughout Nigeria. President Buhari, he commissioned or flagged the new railway last week, and then it opened for business on Tuesday this is really very, very cool because we're starting to see the emergence of a new railway network built by the Chinese, partially financed by the Chinese, start to take shape. And for those who are commuting now between Lagos and Ibadan, it really is a massive time saver. This also brought Transportation Minister Rotimi Amechi onto the media quite a bit. And he did uh, a lot of press. We got a lot of fascinating insights on where Nigeria is in terms of its loans. Uh, that rail line in Ibadan, though, is supposed to now go to the northern city of Kanu. But to do that, Amechi has been trying to get the China Exim Bank to finalize a $5.3 billion loan. That was one of the questions that was put to him on a 45-minute interview on Arise TV. And Arise is one of the national TV networks. This was a fantastic interview. And this, again, makes me very excited when I see Nigerian journalism at its best. You had three hosts on this show who are just grilling the minister on every kind of question. And it's that kind of transparency and accountability 
that is very exciting. And there's an exchange that I wanted to share with you. It goes on for a little bit, but it informs us a little bit about the tone and tenor of the discussion that's going on today in Nigeria about Chinese loans and some of the misperceptions that still exist. So first will be the question from the host on Arise TV, followed by Transportation Minister Rotimi Amechi. Well, Honorable Minister, uh, well, China, under its uh, Belt and Road Initiative, has been giving a lot of loans to uh, developing countries, either in Asia or Africa. But there is also this concern about how Chinese loans can be very tricky. Uh, what kind of loan security do we have in place in Nigeria to prevent Nigeria from getting into the Zambian situation when Zambia ran out of uh, options for servicing its loans? China has practically taken over the national assets of, uh, of uh, Zambia, uh, including the national electricity company, Zesco. How do we prevent that from happening here in Nigeria? What plans? Do we have in terms of security? Ruben, I'm not aware of your information. What I'm aware of is the fact that when you take the loan, uh, you expect to pay back. And as we're talking today, we're paying back. Ruben, under the regime of President Goodluck Jonathan, you, the, the loan for about, uh, Abuja Kaduna was taken about $500 million. Ruben, as we're talking today, we've paid over $150 million on that loan. And Nigeria has never defaulted when it comes to loan, uh, loan repayment. I don't also expect that we should we would default in any other uh, loans that we have taken. I expect that whatever budget, whatever loan we take, we'll be able to repay. I'm not aware that there's any clause in the in in the loan agreement that hands over any of our national assets to China. Yes, when you default, they may go to court. It depends on the outcome of the court case. So I'm not aware that there's anyone, any of the clauses signed by this government or, in, or, or the previous government of President Kulodinat and that uh, uh, mortgaged any of our national assets. That is a really refreshing, honest discussion on these issues. And I'm so glad that the minister corrected and fact-checked Ruben, the host, because once again, he was misled, as many journalists in Africa are, about the situation in Zambia. No national assets have been turned over. There have been no debt traps. There have been no forcible seizures in uh, of the power company, the TV company. Cobus, you and I have talked about this for years, but yet the perception still remains. Also, to hear the, the minister talk about how loans are actually being repaid. And that this is the type of information that we saw in the aid data Center for Global Development, Kiel Institute report on how China lends, on what those terms are in the contracts. That's what Amaichi was talking about. Okay, as I mentioned, that, that rail line to Ibadan is supposed to now extend up to uh, the northern city of Kano. That is a $5.3 billion loan that they have been waiting on for months and months and months. But it's stuck in limbo, and there's no word from the China Exim Bank about whether or not they're going to approve it or not. And that Ibadan to Kano line isn't the only rail project that the Chinese seem to be balking at. Earlier this week, Bloomberg reported that the Nigerian government has more or less given up on waiting for Chinese creditors on two loans for two railway projects totaled a value of $14.4 billion, and they're now talking to Standard Chartered Bank. No confirmation from Standard Chartered on that as of yet. Well, one of those rail lines is the $3.2 billion Eastern Line, 
which links the port city of Port Harcourt in the southeast with Maiduguri in the north. And then another one is an $11.2 billion contract that was actually signed back in 2014 to build what's called the coastal line that would connect Lagos in the southwest with the southeastern port town of Calabar. So, Cobus, we've been hearing a lot over the past year about the sharp downturn in Chinese infrastructure lending, especially from the policy banks. This is data that we heard from the Center for Global Development Policy at Boston University. Also, Carrie has been talking about that at Johns Hopkins University. This seems to be what it looks like in practice. Yes, this is it's it's a very interesting development. You know, clearly there's been some kind of some kind of directive or some kind of shift um, in in China, and uh, uh, you know, kind of a heightened concern about exposure to to debt. Um, and with that, also, a, you know, a much, much more kind of complicated mix of different Chinese lenders kind of coming on the scene compared to two years before. So I think the big issue then becomes whether this is a, a retreat, you know, by, by China from, from African infrastructure lending, or if it's something more complicated. You know, if, we, if, we, if, it look, if it's a more of a, a kind of a rebalancing or a, a kind of a mixing it up, you know, in, in terms of the, the number of creditors involved and the kinds of, of credit being given. It's, it's a very interesting moment. Well, let's get a perspective from somebody who's been following this very closely for a number of years. Uh, Zainab Usman is the director of the Africa program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. Uh, prior to joining Carnegie earlier this year, Zainab spent four years at the World Bank in Washington. Zainab, a very good morning to you and welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Kobus. Good to be here. Well, we're very happy to have you, in part because there's so much going on right now, and we're hoping you can help make sense and help us figure out what's going on. Earlier this month, you wrote a post on the Carnegie site entitled, What Do We Know About Chinese Lending in Africa? You've been looking at the data from the China-Africa Research Initiative, Aid Data, Center for Global Development, all of those different inputs. What is the information telling you about the current state of Chinese lending in Africa. Great. So before I get into that, uh, maybe it might be important for me to explain why I even decided to do that analysis. Uh, so personally, I've been uh, working on and off on China-Africa issues for, um, I would say, probably six or seven years, right from when I was in grad school at the University of Oxford. So when I was there, I uh, ran the Oxford University China-Africa Network for a bit. Um, so during that period, I, I saw the debate, the discourse evolve, right, from a situation in which you had just a couple of specialists, whether it's, uh, you know, Deborah Brotigam at uh, the size carry, uh, even before she set up the size carry uh, Johns Hopkins University, or just generally specialized researchers uh, who have done the work for quite a number of years. So I saw the debate shift from uh, something that was highly specialized to something that had that that kind of filtered into uh, popular discourse in the media, uh, and and certainly it was taken up by um, a couple of. Um, research institutes, think tanks, uh, policy analysts, and even the media in, in, in D.C., in London, around the world. Uh, and very importantly, I think one would say uh, uh, an important turning point was um, with the Trump administration, 
the, the the focus on China and the 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 decision to try to um, maybe counter China in certain spaces, including on the African continent. Uh, so you saw that shift from something that was highly specialized to something that was a bit more mainstream, I would say. Uh, and alongside that shift then was um, less of a tendency to rely on hard data, hard evidence, even though uh, more and more data, more and more analyses, more and more evidence were all becoming available. Um, so for me personally, when I saw um, uh, the, the database from uh, Aid Data and the Center for Global Development uh, produced, and also obviously the size carry uh, loans database updated, uh, I decided to kind of do a, a sort of a meta-analysis of what we know and what we don't know about Chinese lending in Africa. Also to try to help, because I know a lot more, many, many people are doing the same thing as well, help kind of sanitize the debate a little to focus on the actual issues, at least as much as we can define those issues by data and evidence. So that was really my motivation uh, in, in large part for doing this. Now, in yeah, yeah, so what did I find? Um, uh, the way I structured the, the, the analysis or the article is uh, twofold. Uh, first of all, just kind of summarizing what uh, the, the researchers at size carry and also at uh, the Center for Global Development and Aid Data had identified themselves, and also a few more things. And then also I identified certain unaddressed questions, which to me, I think would benefit from more clarity, more information, more data. So what did I find, you know, section one of the analysis? Five key things. So first of all, uh, China's lending portfolio is quite large, but it is also declining, right? So um, uh, uh, there, there has been uh, a 30% decline in lending since, since, since 2019, even though between uh, the year 2000 and 2019, which is the period that... Uh, the databases cover. Uh, within that period, uh, China has provided, or Chinese entities rather, have provided over $150 billion to uh, African public sector borrowers. Uh, but this is, this is really declining. Um, so so that's, that's really finding number one. Uh, and, and I guess something to add here is that um, even though this figure this volume of lending is declining. In aggregate, um, uh, China still provides the largest volume of loans bilaterally to African countries compared to uh, development assistance, uh, a combination of grants as well as concessional loans from uh, OECD Development Assistance Committee countries, mostly from Europe, from North America, but also Australia, New Zealand, and countries like that. So China is really the largest bilateral lender to African countries. And this, of course, these loans are a combination of commercial and uh, concessional um, uh, financing. So that's finding number one. And finding number two is that uh, Chinese creditors over time, at least within this two-decade period, are increasingly commercial, commercially oriented. 
so in the uh, analysis done by Sice uh, uh, Carey and the, um, the, 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 the institute at uh, Boston University, um, they, they find that, um, you know, in the year 2000, there were mainly three Chinese creditors Whereas um, by 2019, there were more than 20 uh, Chinese lenders, and many of them increasingly are uh, commercially oriented, like the China Development Bank, ICBC, and other such entities. So that's, that's finding number two. Then finding number three is um, the controversial resource-backed lending model actually still persists. So for a while, I think maybe the past two, three years, there was a sense, at least you know, within the popular discourse, that um, somehow this uh, lending model was sort of on its way out, you know, if you exclude, let's say, Angola, uh, where this lending model was, even if it was not pioneered there, at least it was really refined and fine-tuned in that country. There was a sense that there was a, you know, that was on its way out. But that's not necessarily the case, it seems, because you have um, this resource-backed lending model in resource-rich countries like the DRC, where there's the, the SICOMINS agreement for infrastructure, I think transport infrastructure in particular, in Ghana as well, with the uh, Sino-Hydro bauxite-backed loan to finance road projects, and also in Guinea. Um, so this this is still this lending model is still there, and it's it's quite controversial. Uh, it's quite controversial because uh, whilst it has its benefits in the sense that you know within many African countries where there's a high susceptibility to corruption, for example, uh, these countries are just able to bypass bureaucracies and they are able to finance the needed infrastructure by creating an escrow account somewhere where uh, the um, uh, commodity rents are directly deposited there to pay the Chinese lenders. And then, you know, it has its own significant risks that in the, in the event of a uh, commodity price crash, the country may run into difficulty, even though I've been informed by some experts in this area that um, uh, the, the borrower and the lender in the negotiation of the, the loan itself, they usually uh, price in uh, uh, a wide variation of commodity prices, right? Uh, so there, there's, there's supposed to be some kind of mitigation measure to account for severe uh, or sharp collapse of commodity prices, uh, except if there are other contingent factors are at play. So even I am quite curious about how this thing actually works. So just point number three is this resource-backed lending model still persists. Then number four is that um, I think the data, and this is where I, 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 had to, uh, I had to consult other data sources as well, but we've clearly lending uh, from Chinese entities goes mostly to infrastructure uh, and to economic sectors. So this kind of confirms what many people anecdotally were also saying for a long time. So what I found was when I looked at uh, lending from Chinese entities, and then I looked at lending from, at least bilateral lending from OECD DAC countries, um, I found that 
um, more than 65% of Chinese financing to the public sector in Africa goes to economic sectors and infrastructure. So these economic sectors, to be precise, are communications, energy, business, transport, and banking. And what's actually interesting is when you combine uh, this figure with the 16% of the lending that goes to production sectors, such as agriculture, forestry, industry, mining, and trade, the share goes to over 80%. So over 80% of Chinese lending goes to uh, uh, infrastructure sectors, economic sectors, and production sectors. Now, in comparison, um, 55% of the OECD DAC bilateral financing uh, from Europe, from North America, from Japan, New Zealand, Australia, and I think South Korea too, goes to social sectors. So this is an aggregate. Uh, these social sectors are health, population, education, and uh, humanitarian aid. Um, so, you know, one could conclude, and actually here I'm, I'm rephrasing something that... Um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the economics professor, uh, Carlos Lopez, uh, who was also the former head of the UN Economic Commission for Africa. He read the article and he tweeted it, and this was his framing. He said, uh, it looks like uh, bilateral aid from China to Africa focuses primarily on economic and productive transformation, while OECD countries focus on social uh, sectors and poverty reduction. So that was an interesting framing. But for me, I was just, I was quite interested to just look at what the data, uh, what the data were able to tell me. Then a uh, final finding is that um, clearly there are sophisticated contract terms uh, uh, within, within these uh, loan agreements that uh, primarily aim to manage high-risk borrowers. So the, the Chinese loan contracts, um, based on the analysis done by Aid Data and the Center for Global Development researchers, uh, contain um, elaborate repayment safeguards, including the very controversial confidentiality clauses that are meant to guarantee repayment by borrowers. Uh, and you know the, these confidentiality clauses, they also have uh, several other dimensions in the sense that they also um, restrict uh, the borrower from engaging in uh, multilateral debt restructuring initiatives, like the one um, uh, hosted by the World Bank, for example. Uh, so I that 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 was uh, quite interesting. So those are really the five key findings. As as, as you mentioned, the um, there's this really stark difference between between o OECD DAC. Um, you know, um, financing and Chinese financing and, and the way that they flow into different sectors of the economy. Um, you know, having spent, uh, you know, uh, many years at, at, at the World Bank, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what underlies that difference. Like what, 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 are, the, what are the kind of assumptions and the kind of narratives that, that kind of hold, hold these kind of uh, non-Chinese non, non lenders back from investing in, in infrastructure? So... <laughs> Yeah, so so the you know discussions around what sectors um, uh, traditional lenders, quote unquote, from 
um, from Europe, from North America, uh, in terms of the, the bilateral lenders, but also the multilateral lenders, uh, like the World Bank. So discussions around what sectors they focus on, um, you know, they're quite, uh, they're, they're quite, I would say, still animated. But there's also a history there, and maybe that's what I'm going to focus on. Uh, the, it, it, so it's, it's important to understand how uh, the history of um, uh, foreign aid and uh, de- development financing, how that history has evolved, right? Um, so in the, in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, the World Bank itself uh, did a lot of infrastructure projects. I mean, at the time, it was still mostly referred to as the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And indeed, it was set up to, um, to help rebuild Europe after the devastation of World War II. Um, so with that mindset also, the, 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 the ideas at the time globally on, um, on, on economic management, on how to build economies was very much centered on uh, strong uh, state orientation or state-led approach to development. Uh, in which infrastructure, uh, public investments in infrastructure featured heavily. Uh, from then on, the, the late 70s, particularly the 80s, I would say, and also the 90s, uh, there was a shift from the state-led approach in which infrastructure featured heavily to a more kind of market-oriented approach in which it was concluded that um, governments were not uh, the most effective or the most efficient um, actors in economic management. And that space was best ceded to, or was best managed by uh, private entities, by market forces. So it was really, the idea was to cede the space to these uh, private actors. Uh, the process of doing that entailed um, uh, rolling back, really, uh, the state participation in the economy, including you know, deregulation, removing excessive regulations, uh, trade liberalization. That's the Washington consensus, more or less. Exactly, the, the Washington consensus, more or less. And with that, then, uh, there was also the idea that investment, public investments in infrastructure uh, were often associated with the inefficiencies uh, uh, of government. Um, so that space also was best see- was, was, should be ceded or yeah, should be ceded to uh, private actors that the, the market would decide whether uh, a certain rail project or airport somewhere or port somewhere, whether that was needed in the economy. Um, so, so with that then, at the time then, uh, you know, lenders, um, concessional lenders uh, to poor countries, many of which were and still are in Africa, focused on doing uh, governance reforms, institutional reforms, mostly around this Washington consensus to really limit the role of the state in an economy, to reduce these inefficiencies. Then from the late 1990s until 
until maybe, you know, the mid-2010s, there was then a focus on poverty reduction. Because in addition to many factors, right, you know, the collapse of commodity prices in the 1980s, the debt crisis, uh, you know, reforms that didn't quite work, uh, war, civil wars, and all sorts of challenges, poverty actually increased in many African countries and many poor, many some some uh, low-income countries around the world too. So then the focus was that uh, external actors, external lenders, uh, foreign aid more broadly should focus on addressing poverty, uh, reducing poverty, social sectors. And, and I, I think along the line, something also happened that we don't probably acknowledge as much uh, at, at least in the critiques and the literature that you read of this period, that perhaps maybe expertise was also lost, expertise in really building the hard infrastructure, because this was no longer being done. So whether expertise in building dams, which then became, you know, dam- dams became very, very controversial for a long time, or, you know, rail projects or roads. Uh, so that expertise perhaps was also lost, uh, but now we're seeing a resurgence in interest, I would say, from the mid to late 2010s to date, um, a resurgence in interest in engaging in uh, 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 infrastructure investments in poor countries in, in, in Africa. So uh, right until, uh, so before I left the World Bank in 2018, I think, uh, there was a restructuring that happened uh, where an infrastructure vice presidency was actually created, which aggregated, um, oh, which, which covered um, departments on energy, on transport, and on uh, ICT and, uh, uh, and, and the digital economy, right? So there's, there's a renewed interest in trying to engage in infrastructure, but I worry that uh, the expertise itself has kind of, uh, atrophied and is no longer there. That needs to be, that needs to be rebuilt. So, so that's my roundabout well, way. The expertise where? Because the Chinese sure. have the expertise in doing that. Where, where are you talking about the oh, expertise? Oh, so atrophied? I'm talking about the expertise in, say, some of the multilateral agencies, right? In, in, in thinking okay. about infrastructure in the 21st century. Okay, so I'm really glad you brought that up because that transitions perfectly into where I want to take our discussion. So it's it really is back to the future again. And just last week, we heard the, the unveiling. Here we go, another American program, Build Back Better World. Okay, get that B3W. That is the Biden slogan that's now been adapted by the G7 to build infrastructure. And what's interesting about what you're saying is that there are a lot of the hallmarks of the Washington consensus in the B3W, which is to use private capital, they want to differentiate themselves from the Chinese and the statist model to use the private sector and the, and, the, and the market. But it does raise the question as to whether or not the expertise is actually there to execute. And that's really very interesting in terms of whether or not the money is going to be there and the expertise is, be there, is going to be there in order for something like B3W to work. So I'm curious to get your response to what you think of the Biden G7 proposal do you think it'll work in a place like Africa? Is the private capital market and private investors and public-private partnerships, are they up for the task? Do they have the ability to actually build roads at the speed and scale that, say, the Chinese are doing, as we've seen in the Ibadan-Lagos railway and, and whatnot? What's your take on that? 
Yeah. So so there are a couple of dimensions to that question, right? And I'll break break the question into three. Um, so first aspect would be, uh, you know, just the notion of having um, some some inf- some vision for investing in infrastructure in uh, in 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 developing countries. I think that's a great thing. That is absolutely a great thing uh, because uh, these countries need those investments. I mean, we all know of the figure that is touted everywhere, every day, that Africa needs um, investments amounting to about $150 billion a year for like a decade to close the infrastructure gap. Uh, Similarly, in Asia too, many Asian countries, uh, especially South Asia, actually, uh, they need connectivity infrastructure. Uh, so it's it's a great idea. It's it's a great initiative that now the G7 is finally waking up to the fact that look, you cannot just ignore uh, the fact that countries needs ro- need roads. I mean, if you want to if you want to address poverty in a rural area, uh, some village somewhere or some town somewhere in the Sahel, you know, in the Horn of Africa, you you have to invest in roads. So that farmers can take their produce to urban markets, so that that building a road actually helps address the vital issue of market access for many um, producers. But is is that what you're hearing reading in the G7's announcement? Because what I read in the G7's announcement is we don't like China. We want to confront China. Sure. We want to <laughs> smack China. I didn't hear any of the sensitivity and the subtlety that you're talking about. All I heard was China, 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 China. Absolutely. So, so that's a fair point that, um, uh, you know, <laughs> at least at the very, very high level, um, you're not necessarily hearing that um, this interest in infrastructure is, is directly being informed or driven by uh, the concerns that many ordinary Africans have on the ground. At the same time, you know, these um, high-level officials make these policy pronouncements based on a lot of work that is done in the background by their, um, you know, advisors, assistants, by bureaucrats. And some of these these individuals who do the, 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 the work in the background, they are quite informed, they're quite knowledgeable. Some of these things that I've mentioned actually drive their interest in engaging in these areas, so in, in the renewed interest in infrastructure. So overall, I, I guess a point I'm trying to make is it's a good thing that, you know, despite the whatever motivation is driving it, there's now an interest in investing in infrastructure. So that's that's aspect of the number one of the initial question you asked. Now, aspect number two is, um, uh, is there the expertise to do this? Um, so that that is where it starts getting tricky, I would say, uh, because my 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 sense, and to a large extent, this is anecdotal, and it's something that I really want to investigate further. But my sense is that expertise, uh, some of it still exists, but you know, I I I wonder to what extent you know a country like, let's say Italy. Uh, I'm just picking randomly um, whether Italy can compete with China in terms of building rail infrastructure. Are there are there construction companies? 
uh, that have been building rail infrastructure for the past two decades. Not rail infrastructure that was built like in the early 20th century or the late 19th century, no. You know, so you, you have to start questioning that or even energy, uh, power generation, um, you know, whether the expertise is there. On certain, on, on, on some other areas, sure. You know, I think there is expertise, for example, you look at the UK, the UK has expertise in financial and legal services. And I think there they can actually help support African countries when it comes to negotiations on these infrastructure projects, because that is where you often find a lack of capacity uh, or lack of significant capacity to really negotiate good deals. So I think the UK can, for example, do something along those lines because it has a, the, 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 the legal, similar legal systems with quite a number of African countries, right? So, so expertise is the other area where we have to interrogate that in a critical manner. And then the third aspect of your initial question is, is financing. And I would relate financing also to political will. Is there really a political will, political commitment, which would then translate into hard dollars or euros to invest in infrastructure projects in these countries? Uh, to be honest, I don't know. I'm also quite curious to see more details as to where the financing is going to come from. Because we have to remember this, you know, we're just exiting, barely even exiting this devastating coronavirus pandemic. Uh, the G7 countries themselves have uh, invested about $12 trillion uh, just within one year to supporting their economies, uh, to providing fiscal stimulus, uh, to providing social assistance to really mitigate the worst socioeconomic impacts of the pandemic. And there's still a lot more that needs to be done to ensure that they kickstart their economies. So that's on the economic front. Then on the kind of sociopolitical front, you know, I before I lived in before before I moved to DC, I was in uh, the UK and both in the UK, uh, but also the US and also parts of Europe. You know, I don't know if there's a huge public appetite to spend uh, billions or even trillions of dollars building infrastructure, whether it's roads or bridges or you know, uh, ports in developing countries uh, when there are needs at home, certainly here in the USA. Uh, so, so that I'm also curious to see uh, if they're able to mobilize financing, that would be wonderful. One of the, the questions you raise in the article um, is one that we've been kind of discussing as well. Is this, you know, uh, you know, seen in, in the context uh, um, as been as has been mapped over the last few years, as you know, I, and, and that you mentioned as well, this kind of rapid decrease in in Chinese in, in bilateral Chinese lending uh, for African infrastructure. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the possibility that the, you raise the question of whether this constitutes uh, a retreat of China from you know, by China from the African infrastructure scene or rather a kind of rebalancing. Um, so I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that, like, you know, kind of, you know, kind of what, what are the, some of the factors on the rebalancing side of that argument and what do you think a rebalancing might look like? I mean, I have to admit, uh, as I also mentioned in the art, no, maybe I probably didn't mention it, but maybe I alluded to it. Like, for me, it was uh, a bit of a conjectural statement 
um, meaning that, you know, I, I was just looking at various um, factors and then trying to see where are we headed uh, or what are these various factors telling us as to what is to come in the near future. And for me then, with regards to the specific uh, issue of whether the decline in lending is, um, you know, structural or cy- it's structural decline or cyclical rebalancing. Uh, so my my judgment then leaned towards the latter, that maybe what we're seeing is a rebalancing for a number of reasons, and I'll mention them. So the first is um, obviously since the BRI was launched, um, and of course in the last couple of years, uh, there has been a, you know, a, 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 there, there has been um, a lot of talk um, a lot of critiques that uh, the investments are not environmentally or socially sustainable, there's limited transparency and all of those issues. So just generally the governance around these uh, infrastructure investments uh, you know, was found to be lacking in a sense. So in 2019, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, during the, I think they did the BRI summit, he vowed to increase transparency and fiscal sustainability of BRI projects. Um, so it could be that this is a demonstration of that, or this is uh, a step towards um, realizing that promise of, of trying to increase the sustainability of BRI uh, projects. So the other, a, a second factor I would say, at least that, is informing my own kind of projection is that again you know this is a we're we're we're, we're entering a post pandemic world in which every country is trying to kind of fiscally rebalance uh trying to you know kickstart and revive its economy trying to adjust to this new world we're entering and certainly uh for china uh, the it's it is the case that you know, it is it is under increasing pressure, whether it's from G7 countries or even in its own um, uh, home region in, in East Asia, that, 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 you know, China has a lot to deal with and maybe it is doing the calculation that um, uh, it might need to rethink certain aspects of the BRI. Uh, now, I don't know what aspects those are and I'm also curious to find out more as to what is to come on that front. Then the final thing I would mention is that, uh, and this, this, this is something that is be- becoming a bit more clear as the days go by, that, that maybe there is a sense that Chinese entities are perhaps trying to reduce their exposure to certain high-risk jurisdictions where already there's a, you know, there's a lot of lending um, there, like you know, whether it's Angola or Zambia, and in the case of Zambia, actually, for 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 close to a decade, if not more, uh, China has featured heavily in political discourse in the country. You know, during every presidential election cycle, China tends to be the subject of electoral campaigns, right? So maybe there's a sense that. Uh, Chinese uh, financiers are trying to reduce their exposure to such countries, but then they might be shifting to other countries that are a bit more, I don't know, maybe a bit more stable, a bit more, uh, This not, I mean, it's not to say that Zambia is not stable, but countries where maybe there are more 
high income, maybe uh, there is less of a controversy there. So yeah, just generally less risk, however which way that risk is defined. Uh, so Ghana being one, Nigeria, I mean, <laughs> depending on how you define risk also, not so much these days, exactly. Uh, and then South Africa also, which in which China has always been quite present in the country. Um, so, so maybe, you know, there's a sense that there's that they're trying to shift because after all, the African continent has 54 countries. So I think there's a lot of space still for China and Chinese lenders to uh, uh, operate in. And that's the point that I wrote today in my column, which is that maybe Africa is not the place ultimately for the Chinese after all, and that they are now doing far more business in South America. They're shifting their oil, buying to the Persian Gulf. The, the amount of trade that they do with here in Southeast Asia is on order of magnitude 10 times what it is in Africa, and that the risk premium in Africa for investment and for loans might now be just be too high. We don't know. But it is something that we shouldn't take for granted that the Chinese are going to remain economically engaged in Africa indefinitely. This, they're going to go wherever the best opportunities are. And compared to, say, 10 years ago, when they didn't have as many opportunities, the Belt and Road wasn't there, now they've got a lot of choice. And it's one of the things we, we say when we're inter interviewing African stakeholders is that they have to compete for Chinese money and Chinese investment through better governance, reducing risk, better returns on investment, better feasibility on projects. And all of that needs to happen in order to attract Chinese money today. Very quickly before we go, because we know we, you have a very busy day ahead of you, I am naturally mm -hmm. predisposed to, to on the negative bias simply because I spend all day looking at news headlines that are usually not very optimistic. So I'd like to get your sense about where we are in this moment today. When we look, trying to look past the pandemic, we can't really talk about the post-pandemic era. I'm in lockdown. Cobus is in lockdown. Most people in the global south, we don't have shots, life isn't back to normal, and it's not going to be back to normal for at least another year or so. That being said, when you look out on the horizon, looking at Africa, and what you're advising folks in Washington and writing in your research, do you feel optimistic? Do you feel pessimistic? Where's your, your gut telling you as to where what's around the corner for Africa? <laughs> That's a very very tough question. <laughs> you know your your you know your crystal ball is what we want to take out. What should people be feeling right now in this moment? So, I mean, before I answer that question, I have to to uh, state that you know that the the news the news tends to be biased towards the negative What's because the negative? that that it is does. what sells. Right. You, right. I mean, even even just and it's just naturally what people it's what people want to see. I'll put a positive story up on Twitter. Nothing. Yeah. You know, nothing. Nothing. And I put, exactly. You know, death, destruction, exactly. murder, awful corruption. And it's like, yeah. So it's not just that it likes to sell. I think human beings are predisposed towards this more negative narrative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. Uh, so, so, so that's the thing. There, there's that, and 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 for myself, and I know many people, like we try to limit even the way we consume the news. Like I'm very selective as to what I read, you know. So, anyways, I just thought I'd state that upfront. Fair enough. So let me start. Let me start with a negative, so that we can end on a more positive note. Uh, so on the negative, um, I think even. I, even the idea, and you mentioned this as well, that we are 
entering a post-pandemic world? I don't know. Even that is quite questionable, right? You look at the UK where, um, you know, vaccine coverage has reached nearly 50% of the population, but cases are spiking. And some of the cases are the Delta variant from India, right? Uh, not to mention many countries in the global south, as you, you rightly alluded to, that really have very limited access to vaccines. So, like, you, you start to even question whether we are going to see a quick recovery by this year or whether this thing, and, and this is what I'm starting to suspect, is just going to linger and drag and, yeah, we're going to just have these travel restrictions for not just a few years, but a bit more longer and just things become quite difficult. So that, that worries me. But specifically when it comes to the African continent, again, you know, it's a continent in which um, the, the, the deaths from the coronavirus have been quite limited compared to other parts of the world, maybe because of demographic factors and all of that. But the socioeconomic impacts are quite devastating. And what is, what is quite um, alarming is that uh, in countries where there are all these underlying um, issues around politics, inequalities, uh, you know, divisions, this, the socioeconomic impact of the pandemic is just exacerbating them. Uh, specifically, you know, whether it's Mozambique or Nigeria or even Ethiopia, where you're just seeing all these underlying problems, which have existed for years, by the way, are kind of exploding. So that, I, I, I would say, is really, really worrying. Uh, um, in, in the case of a country like Nigeria, in which uh, it relies on uh, oil exports for 90% of its export earnings, for over 60% of its government revenues, um, the collapse of commodity prices last year, even though they're recovering now, you know, has had a devastating impact on the economy, which is then translating to all these political and social issues. So that, that, that is my concern. And, you know, for quite a number of African countries, uh, debt servicing, not necessarily the debt stock, but debt servicing is really eaten up into their fiscal resources, the resources they can use to do other things, to do the everyday business of governing. Um, so, and I know you've covered the issue of, um, you, know, um, uh, you know, debt relief and trying to get um, uh, uh, additional financing from the IMF through the SDRs, reallocation and all of that. At the same time, on a more positive note, um, there are countries that are doing well. Uh, you look at the data, um, East Africa, actually, uh, whether it's Kenya or even Ethiopia, despite the issues that are going on internally in the country. I mean, all of these countries have uh, projected growth rates for uh, 2021 of at the minimum 4%. And 4% is actually not bad, right? Um, Ghana also is doing fairly well. It's quite stable, um, so I would say, uh, you know, the, the, the atmosphere of despondency is not necessarily spread across the entire continent. But one final thing I would say is, um, I guess, you know, with the pandemic now, we are getting to see 
more African voices, more African participation in global fora. Because ev- a lot is moving virtually, a lot of sessions, a lot of summits that in the past would probably have limited African participation, or just generally you would not even know what is being discussed or what is happening. Um, I think that information is becoming a lot more available, at least to those who can access it. Of course, we have the digital divide and issues like that. So those would be some of the positives that I see. Well, I'm glad that we ended on a positive note, that we always try to end on a positive note. Uh, Zainab Usman is the director of the Africa program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, She wrote an article recently, What Do We Know About Chinese Lending in Africa? I will put a link to that in the show notes. Zainab, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. You are quite active on Twitter, sharing some of the writing that you're doing and also what you're reading. Where can people find you on Twitter? So I'm on at M-S-S-Z-E-E-U-S-M-A-N, Miss Z Usman. Love it. And we'll put a link to your Twitter handle also in the show notes. Once again, thank you so much for your time and all of your fascinating insights. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, it, was, it was fun chatting. Kobus Zainab brought up the issue of rebalancing, and this is a, a word that I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about in the years ahead. Not only are the Chinese seemingly rebalancing their debt portfolio, and we've seen the massive downturn in lending to developing countries, not just in Africa, but also in South America as well. So that's a rebalancing that's going on. In Africa itself, we're not even hearing any of the finance ministries talking about borrowing from the Chinese. Instead, there's a lot more talk of going to the IMF, the World Bank, other multilaterals, and then going back out into the bond markets. I'm not entirely thrilled with the idea of African countries who are already heavily in debt to bondholders to take on yet more bond debt, but I think they don't really have any choice right now. They are starved for capital. We spoke with the folks from Baker McKenzie a couple of weeks ago, and they had that report, which was shocking in terms of the downturn investment in infrastructure spending. The infrastructure spending, I think, is this key issue where that a lot of people in the West and the global North simply do not put enough emphasis on. If the infrastructure isn't there, the jobs aren't there. And if the jobs aren't there, you have the problems that we're starting to see in many of the different countries related to instability. Employment and jobs are the top issues. And so when we talk about the rebalancing in terms of debt, we have to keep that in mind. And the gamble, it seems, that a lot of finance ministries are taking right now is we'll take the short-term pain on interest rates, but we need to get that cash in to build the infrastructure, help us get past this COVID situation, and try and get through to the other side of the pandemic. That's the only thing that I can see right now, but rebalancing is happening all around. I guess you know it's it's it'll it's going to be very interesting to see how how all of this kind of shakes out on the ground in Africa. You know, to, like one one thing, it it strikes me that that um, you know that that unlike a lot of countries in Southeast Asia, um, countries in in Africa that 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 were traditionally resource dependent economies are still resource dependent economies. You know, so a country like Nigeria hasn't managed to 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 kind of diversify beyond oil and and. Uh, 
I remember a, a Nigerian guest we spoke with a few months ago, and, and now I'm unfortunately blanking on the, on the on the person's name, um, but made the point that there isn't that much planning for the for post oil Nigeria as well at the moment anyway. So you know, so so that's a that's a kind of a massive issue, um, because without that, they they just remain so vulnerable to commodity super cycles. You know, um, the other issue is is you know I agree with you that that all of this you know infrastructure is such a key part of development. But it is interesting that that the one part where there doesn't seem to be a retreat from China is in digital infrastructure. So I was wondering if what what part of the rebalancing is going to be the the rise of Africa, the TikTok world power. You know, like whether whether kind of you know like how much of Africa's economic development is going to move online if what we have a situation is like there's not a, a massive rollout of of conventional hard infrastructure, but but well, but but actually a rollout of of internet provision among others because because Chinese companies are, are so squeezed in the rest of the world that that it makes sense for them to focus on Africa as a, as, as a partner. So, you know, if that happens, I wonder if we'll see a, a form of African leapfrogging, you know, kind of beyond moving moving in some kind of ways of, of many African economies moving online in some kind of way. Um, you know, so, so I mean, that's still very, very kind of inchoate. There's no, there's no way of, of, of being, being exact about it, that, what that would look like. But I wonder if that's a big trend we'll see. The problem is, though, is that to have a thriving digital e-commerce industry, you also need a physical infrastructure as well. You need roads, you need power, you need warehouses, you need all the logistics that can support e-commerce, for example, which right now is not present in too many African countries. I mean, power is, of course, the big the big challenge in many African countries. So there's a limit even on the digital side, what can be done without the infrastructure. Let's talk very quickly before we go about B3W versus BRI. You had some opinions that you wrote about this week for the site. I wrote some some columns as well. Let's start with yours. The framing that the Group of Seven is saying is that they want to work with democratic countries. They want to punish non-democratic countries. One of the assessments in the Chinese media was, okay, that's pretty cool. That means a whole bunch of countries are going to come into our column without having to do anything because we're going to alienate all of those countries. That was the the reading on Chinese social media. You picked up on a little bit of that, that it will accentuate divides between certain countries. Tell us your reading of B3W, that's Build Back Better World, the proposal from the Group of Seven. Yeah, I mean, you know, at, at, at first, or, you know, the, the first thing one has to say is that it is great that there's greater commitment from the G7 on, on these issues, you know, because there wasn't much commitment to it before. And and if if it takes, you know, kind of having a big geopolitical fight with China to, to bring that attention, then, you know, that's 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 a complicated situation. But, but hold on, why do you think this is going to be any different than the Blue Dot Network, than the Clean Network, than any of the, re- you know, the rhetoric that's come out of Washington over the past 10 years. We can only evaluate commitment when something's actually done. The only thing they promised in the communique, the only thing that they promised in the communique was to form a task force. No money, no timeline, nothing. Okay, so so you know, kind of like like you know, kind of stepping up to bat for the G seven isn't my nat- kind of natural position. So you know, I, I tend to be quite like quite cynical about about them. However, 
you know, kind of what, what I think one of the kind of meta points that, that Zainab made was that there isn't movement in these massive institutions before there's a kind of the, 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 the discursive construction hasn't been done, right? Kind of so if there isn't the kind of preparatory work in, in setting up the way of thinking, the, the kind of the policy direction, the, the kind of the framing of, of this, then nothing else moves, right? So, so in that sense, I think it, it is encouraging if one sees it as this kind of, this kind of uh, you know, initial work being done, which will then, you know, kind of like set up the, the kind of channels, uh, you know, to, to channel kind of commitment, political will and money. You know, and uh, you know the thing is, you know, th there's no guarantee about whether that is what we're seeing, but there's no way of of, of channeling channeling those resources without doing this work beforehand. You know, so 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 if if that is what was happening, then great, Let, you know, kind of let's see. I guess um, for me, the <laughs> the issue is, is is a little bit like. Um, you know, I, I think just just from from my perspective, the the like the, the focusing on democracies in this kind of way, I, I can see I can see why the U.S. does that. You know, kind of I, I can see where where it fits into their into their worldview, but it it leaves out a lot of very kind of uncomfortable conversations, including, for example, the the example that I raised was, you know, Hungary has been a right wing, you know, kind of proto dictatorship in the bosom of Europe for years and years and years, and it doesn't to seem to bother anyone, right? Like, you know, how does that, for example, you know, not weaken this kind of democracy's first way of thinking? You know, um, it, it's you can say the same thing for many U.S. allies. You know, um, and so you know at, at that that being you know that, that that's one point. The other the other kind of related point is that like this kind of insistence on democracies, even though I personally support it. Of course, I support democracy. You know, like I, I tend to favor living in a democracy, and I and I'm very happy that South Africa is one right now. You know, kind of after many decades of being being. Being not one, but the point is the the many decades that South Africa was not a democracy, it was supported at every step by big Western powers. Um, you know, so so like the authoritarianism authoritarianism in South Africa was supported wholeheartedly by by many many different generations of Western leaders, um, and at the same time, like the the democracy issue, the way of of kind of dividing countries into democracies versus non democracies, it plays badly in Africa because Africa is so hypersensitive to, uh, about external intervention in in its politics, and because this kind of democratization rhetoric has been misused so many times over over the years um so you know so so in that sense you know like i, I don't think it's I, you know i can see where it comes from in the u.s but at the same time i don't think it's going to be very effective i was disappointed that the plan did not include any specifics and as soon as it didn't include any of the details about a dollar figure or any firm commitments by any of the governments this thing ain't happening that's my view it's not happening first of all there is all the good Vegas money right now is on the Republicans taking back the House next year. And once that happens, Biden's not going to get a penny through that he wants to do. And there is no appetite in the Trump party right now to spend money on building infrastructure in Tanzania. Zero. That ain't happening. It's not even to build, to build infrastructure in Tennessee. They can't even build infrastructure in Tennessee. Okay, so without actually putting the money down now and taking advantage of the window that they've got left in the administration, which I think if the House flips or in the Senate flips, but if the House flips next year, all bets are off. And the fact that they didn't put any commitment 
that puts the U.S. reputation on the line to follow through. So you could at least shame the Republicans into saying, we've got to do it because we promised. They can back out of this. This thing could be years and years and years. I got the sense from reading the Chinese press, and I did a media review uh, on the website this week, a Chinese press review. Nobody in China, nobody in Beijing, nobody in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was shaking in their boots after seeing B3W. Like, nobody. I mean, they're like, yeah, you yeah, think no, you can I, do I this? Same sense, yeah. Go ahead. You know, they've done 2,600 projects, hundreds of billions of dollars. They've got a massive head start. They've got the, the, the logistics companies. They've got the construction companies. They've got the people who've got 10, 15, 20 years of building infrastructure in some of the most difficult parts of the world, from Sudan to Ecuador to you name it. We don't have any of that. We're going to be starting from scratch right now. And if we have not been able to coax the private sector into building infrastructure when money was cheap and easy and when Africa was stable and on the upswing, remember that whole Africa rising kind of period? If that period couldn't have attracted private capital in, what makes you think you're going to be able to attract private capital now into environments where, let me read you a headline right now today from Reuters. Sudan's prime minister warns of risk of chaos, civil war. The same time, they just shut down electioneering campaigning in Lusaka because of violence. Nigeria is encountering violence. You're going to attract private capital into markets like this in a condition where the pandemic is still wreaking havoc for potentially years to come? Never going to happen. This is another half-baked idea coming out of the U.S. that they think they can get away with marketing and, and catchy phrases, but not deliver. And they continually do this. And to me, it's like anybody should really stop believing the Americans on these things until they actually deliver something. That is when we, we talk about commitment. Let's see something happen first. And the French, the Germans, they're no better. No better in terms of building massive infrastructure on the scale. The Turks, by the way, that I would believe. There are people other than the Chinese who can do it. They're just not the very big rich countries in the G7. That's my take. Final thoughts to you before we go. Yeah, no, you know, I, <laughs> I generally agree with you. I think, um, I think the, you know, in it, what, what kind of what dismayed me a little bit about all of this, I mean, among the many things, is is that in in many ways, simply a simply a hard commitment to to you know, kind of to, for example, a climate-friendly domestic energy provision within the U.S. That would have gone, you know, simply a hard commitment saying like, look, you know, kind of we are, we are gonna, we're committing ourselves in, in, in really kind of hard ways in, in, you know, kind of in meeting these, these kind of climate goals, you know, we, we're not gonna, we're not gonna, um, sorry, can I actually retake that question? Like I, I'm, I'm waffling a bit. You know, I think I, I think if this if this channels more resources, more political will, more attention to um, to these issues in in the global south, then great. I 
don't think it will. Um, and I think with that comes comes very interesting questions around around the issues of of kind of national reputation. You look like like like, uh, like you said before the um, you know the, the the US the US was or the Biden administration was was careful to not to not kind of like stake the US's entire reputation on this issue, but it kind of already is now staked on this issue. Um, so then it'll be very interesting to see what that then means. You know, if the US whiffs on this and doesn't deliver, what does that translate into in terms of its its global influence? Does that actually diminish its global influence? And if not, what is that global influence then based on? Uh, you know, kind of. So, so, so I think I think this is this is one of the really kind of it's going to be a, I think seen as a really revealing moment a few years from now, when you know, kind of when whatever kind of shift China is making in, in relation to financing has become clearer. Um, you know, then I think it'll be very interesting to see kind of how how kind of the, these two superpowers international kind of influence is actually how it actually operates and, and what it actually constitutes um, and you know but but uh, yeah I think I think this is kind of an inflection point but I don't I tend to not think that B3W is going to be a big thing okay we'll leave it there Isn't if this is the kind of topic that you're interested in and getting into the detail that Zainab did you want to subscribe to our website you'll get full access to the archives going back Years, So basically, it's a great searchable archive of every China-Africa story, and increasingly China in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. Uh, coming this summer, we're going to start broadening our focus even more to include Latin America and Central Asia and other parts of the global south as well. We have a new site design coming out later in the summer. We've got some really cool things, and Kobus and I were thinking of having a show just to update everybody on what we're doing and what we're working on. We'll also have a dedicated resource who's going to be looking at Chinese uh, sources and research and bringing that into our site and into our newsletter. So if you're a researcher, a diplomat, an analyst, a think tanker, a scholar, a student, or just somebody interested in this subject and wants to understand what China's doing in the world, then you want to subscribe to the China Africa Project. Uh, subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers, $15 a month for everybody else. If you're interested, go to China Africa Project dot com slash subscribe. We'll let you try it out for free for 30 days. If you don't like it, you can cancel at any time, but we hope that you'll stay with us and get the newsletter every day and then check out the website and all the columns that Kobus and I are doing along with a number of other contributors as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter, Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Project.com.